This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you, wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. Grace, mercy, and peace be yours in abundance through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The name John Newton probably doesn't mean much to many of you. He lived during the 1800s. He was a slave runner. He went to Africa and he captured slaves, of course, against their will, and he transported them to America. And he gave no thought to what he was doing, and it didn't bother his conscience because he saw this as a means to an end. It was lucrative, made a lot of money. He was making a good living doing what he was doing. So as I say, none of this bothered him until one day when he was taking another human cargo back to America, and he actually stopped to look around him. And what he saw shocked him. What he saw was that the slaves that he was transporting were sharing their meager rations with one another. I mean, there was barely enough for one person, let alone multiple people. They were encouraging one another, and they actually were were smiling. And they were singing songs of their native land, Africa, to to encourage one another. And and, and he stepped back, and he looked at that, and, and he thought to himself, what is going on here? And then he realized something. It was not those slaves that were in captivity. It was he himself. He himself was in the captivity of sin. He was the one that was in chains. Suddenly, his eyes were opened. It was, in fact, Christ himself who found, if I can use that terminology, John Newton. It was Christ who freed him from the bondage of his sin, from the sin of slavery. It was Christ who unloosed the chains that were around him. It was Christ who drove him to his knees in repentance. It was purely and only by God's grace in Jesus that he became a changed man. It was the spirit of Christ who motivated him to write a hymn. And this is how you know him and why you know him. The hymn he wrote was... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I'm sure for many of you, and I heard from people in the first service, that's my favorite hymn, is mine too. Whenever I hear that hymn or sing that hymn, believe it or not, I have a little smile that comes to my face. Because in the church I served for many years, St. John's and St. John's and Lannan, we had an evening service, and I think it was a New Year's Eve service, if memory serves. And we had that hymn as the closing hymn that evening. And the secretary did a oops, a typo. And the typo was this: Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wreck like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Ridiculous, isn't it? Not really. If you think of it, there's real truth in that typo, isn't it? We are all nothing by nature but wretched wrecks 
before our God. That's who we are. And that is, in fact, who Isaiah was here in the text that I'm about to read to you from Isaiah chapter 6. God chose Isaiah to be his servant. And there was nothing special about Isaiah, as far as we know. Ordinary man like you, an ordinary woman like you and me. Nothing special at all about him. And yet God chose him to be a servant. And a little bit later, as, as we talk about this, he presents himself before the Lord and says, Here am I, send me. Let me share with you the words of our text this morning from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. and The temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. He said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. The text here dates itself in that we're told that this vision occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. That would put this about year 724 B.C. And at this point, and it's been that way for some time, the children of Israel are split up into the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And at this point in their history, they're still doing very well, agriculturally, economically, and also militarily. Uzziah had a standing army of 307,500 men, which was really an amazing army for that day. It was kind of unheard of to have that many people in an army, yet that's the kind of military protection they had. So everything seems to be going well except there are storm clouds brewing. In about 20 years, the Assyrians will come and invade the 10 northern tribes and sweep them away. In about 160 years, the Babylonians will come and come to Jerusalem and lay siege to that and take them captive and take many of them captive and take them back to Babylon. There, there's no way here in this text at this point, it, it appears that this is on the horizon, yet this is what's coming. And into this kind of setting, God calls Isaiah, you talk about a difficult ministry that he has ahead of him, into this type of ministry God calls Isaiah. It's a little bit like Jeremiah, not maybe on the same level, but God called Jeremiah to be a servant and, and basically told him, you're going to proclaim my words, and I'm telling you right now, no one will listen to you. No one. How would you like to be called to a ministry like that? You're going to fail in terms of the way we judge things humanly. 
This is the ministry that God has called Isaiah to. Now, let's get to the vision and talk about that for a minute. We're told that Isaiah saw the Lord seated high and exalted on the throne. Now, if you take a look at John 12, 41, John identifies and, 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 and reminds us of the fact that who Isaiah is seeing is the second person of the Trinity. It is the, it is the Lord himself. See, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So he sees Jesus in all of his glory, and it's a little bit like, I suppose, what happened with uh, Peter, James, and John in the Mount of Transfiguration. We're told that the train, just the train of his robe, filled the temple. Now, in, in the church that I served in Lannan, it was, I would say, maybe two stories high, maybe not quite that high. Um, some people here in the text, they wonder, was this vision was this the heavenly Jerusalem, or was this, in fact, the vision where the Lord is sitting in the earthly Jerusalem, the temple, which would have been about four and a half stories high? So the point I'm trying to make is whether this was the earthly Jerusalem or the church that I served in Lannan or, or here, just the train of his robe would fill the whole worship sanctuary, just, just the train. But there's more to this vision. We're told that there are seraphim, angels, fiery beings, messengers of the Lord. It's, it, but it's interesting to hear what they're doing. They have six wings. And with two wings, they're covering their feet. With two wings, they're covering their face. And with two wings, they're flying. And they're exclaiming, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And the crescendo of your voices is so strong that the very foundation of the temple itself is being shaken. Here's what I want you to take away from this, as I just shared with you with the angels. These are angels who are confirmed in righteousness. They don't deal with the sinful natures that you and I deal with every day. They are before the Lord night and day, so to speak. And yet in that vision, our Savior is so holy, so apart from everyone else, that even the angels themselves have to cover their faces and their feet in the presence of God Almighty. It's little wonder then that in our text, when we get back to Isaiah, Isaiah sees all of this unfolding and says, Woe to me, I'm ruined. I have unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the Lord God Almighty. Again, a little bit like the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory was revealed, and Peter, James, and John basically were more comfortable burying their head in the ground in the sight of that glory. What an awesome vision, and you can understand why Isaiah responds that way, because he feels he should be dead in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. He is totally unworthy to be in his presence. So that brings me to this question this morning. How do you feel this morning being in the presence of God Almighty? I, I, I realize that God is not revealing himself in the same way as he did to Peter, James, and John in the Mount of Transfiguration as he did here with Isaiah. 
Do you feel a sense of awe and majesty and unworthiness? And if not, why not? Do we think somehow that the Lord truly isn't present this morning? When in fact, as we share God's word, he is present, do we think somehow that when we receive the body and blood of the Lord, that the Lord somehow is going to detach himself from the earthly elements? When you come into worship here at Victory of the Lamb, do you understand who you're standing before? Not me, it's not Pastor Bill. It is the Lord himself. And maybe if we have a difficult time with that, it might be because we don't understand how unworthy we are. So let me share an illustration, and I apologize, I'm going wider here rather than deeper, to set the table here. Imagine there are two children, and I'm going to call the boy Cade and the girl Samantha. My apologies if there's a Cade or Samantha here this morning. And Cade and Samantha are going to Grandma and Grandpa's house. What grandchildren wouldn't look forward to that? So Grandpa does what Grandpas do, and he shouldn't have done. And I know because I'm a grandpa and I get in trouble all the time with my grandkids. Grandma always yells at me. This grandpa gives a 10-year-old a slingshot. Now, something bad is going to happen. So they live in a rural setting, and they send Kate out into the woods, and he's, he's trying to hit anything. He, he can't even hit a tree if it's six feet in front of him, four feet in front of him. So he's getting frustrated. He's going to go back home. And the last thing he sees before he goes in the house is Grandma's cat. Well, you probably know where this is going. He thinks, well, I'll never hit this cat right in the head. And the cat dies. It's Grandma's cat. He's mortified. He doesn't know what to do. And so he takes the cat and he places it or buries it in the woodpile. And he thinks he's gotten away with it, except for the fact that his sister, Samantha, saw it all. So that night, they're at the dinner table, supper table, and they're finishing up, and Cade's going to run off and do something, and, and Grandma says, hey, Samantha, can you help me with the dishes? And, and Samantha says, you know what? Cade will help you tonight. And he goes to Cade and whispers in Cade's ear, remember the cat. Next day, Grandpa's going to take them all fishing. But before they go fishing, Grandma says, Samantha, I'd like you to help me do some work around the house here. Can you help me? And Samantha says, no, Cade would love to. Remember the cat. This goes on for about a week. And finally, Cade can't stand it anymore. And he goes to Grandma, and he says, Grandma, I killed your cat. And Grandma says, I know. I saw it. I was at the window. I saw everything you did. And Grandma took him and hugged him and gave him a kiss and said, I love you. That Grandma being at the window, seeing everything that Cade had done, reminds me and should remind you as well of our God. Our God has been at the window, so to speak, of our lives, and he's seen it all, everything we've done. 
This morning when I was in Pastor Bill's study and office, he's got a little plaque on the top of his bookshelf that says, I saw, what is it, I saw what you did? I saw that, signed God. God has stood at the window of our lives. He's seen everything in stunning 4K, soon to be 8K, HD clarity. He's seen our sin, our malice, our envy, our greed, our lust, our rage, how we have torn people down with our words, according to the Eighth Commandment, our gossip. He's seen the fact that we have not been the kind of children or, or, or parents or husband or wives that, that we should be. He's seen it all. So then can you understand why Isaiah said what he did and why we should say what Isaiah did when he said, in the presence of the Lord, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet I'm in the presence of God, and I'm living. Shouldn't that really be our attitude whenever we come together to worship our awesome God? Now, I just shared with you a section of this vision, and it's pretty amazing stuff, but it's really not the most important part of this text. The most important part of this text comes in verses 6 and 7, where we read again, One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth. He said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. When I was in grade school at St. James and 60th and Lloyd, Whenever our teachers would share this with us, Mrs. Stitt, Ms. Kurth, Mr. Minkle, anytime they would read this, as a child sitting there in the desk, I'd go, that's got to hurt. Well, there's symbolism involved here, isn't there? It's not the coal that took away Isaiah's sin. as It's not a live coal that takes away our sin. We are not at one with God because of that. We are at one with God because of the cross. On a hill, on a Friday we call good, when the perfect Lamb of God hung on that cross, when blood oozed from his wounds, trickled down the cross, and got soaked up in the ground. That sacrifice, that salvation, is what makes us at one with God, and it is what allows us to come together here and worship the living God and to have the hope of heaven and to be a servant. The change in Isaiah from what he said to what he says now in verse 8 is stunning. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Based on the atoning sacrifice of the Lord and Savior, as I said before, Isaiah presents himself to be God's servant in a very difficult setting. Here you are this morning, and I don't know what vocation God has placed you in. Somebody's son or daughter, married or unmarried, grandchildren or not. I don't know where God has placed you in terms of where you work, the setting. 
I unfortunately don't know much about any of you. But I know this. God has made you a servant of his. And I pray that you are just as willing to be a servant as Isaiah was here in our text. In Isaiah 64, 8, Isaiah wrote, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. By inference, we are all the work of God's hands. And as such, and because we are all works in progress, no matter what the age, young or old, we are not finished by any stretch of the imagination, finished products. We ask our God to shape us, make us, and mold us into the kind of servants that he wants us to be. And God does that through, as always, word and sacrament. This morning, in closing, we say, along with Isaiah, Lord, make me your servant. Mold us, shape us, make us, as you would. God grant that to all of us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast, brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us, and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at, go to victoryofthelamb.com.